Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Tanya Smith, and I am currently a clinical pharmacy specialist in internal medicine at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Jordan McPherson, oncology clinical pharmacist at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah Health, and adjunct assistant professor at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy in Salt Lake City, Utah. We are faculty for an educational initiative titled Predicting the Unpredictable, Navigating the Ever-Changing Landscape of Immunotherapy and Immune-Related Adverse Event Management. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Tanya? Oh, just peachy. We have done quite a bit together now related to immunotherapy. I've done some presentations, some other podcasts, and this year we took an interesting spin on immunotherapy and decided to talk a lot about drug interactions. So today I want to talk about some of the other topics we've covered related to immunotherapy and maybe give some additional information that will be surprising, but regardless, I think will be informative. And I think this is important because this this podcast will be focused more on how we manage pain in patients with cancer who are receiving immunotherapy. And I think it's important because pharmacists in all areas of practice will be involved with patients receiving immunotherapy, whether they realize it or not. And a lot of the medications that we're going to talk about today are readily available, many even over-the-counter. And so I guess wonder what uh, what experience have you had in managing pain in patients with cancer and how might that relate to what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. So, I mean, our, our discussion at mid-year, um, you know, really around optimizing immunotherapy and we, we brought up a lot of different subjects. And so this drug interaction one is the one that was just really, I think, interesting to a lot of the people that were listening and brought forward a lot of questions. And so but there's kind of these natural ramifications of, you know, if you have a drug interaction, you got to have a backup plan, right? <laughs> and so one of uh, the things that is top of mind for me when I'm treating somebody with cancer is that I've got to have, you know, if I do identify an interaction, I've got to have a backup plan in place. I've got to have something that's readily available for me to recommend if I'm recommending against something. And so I think that's kind of one of the highlights that we're focusing on today is like, what do you do when, especially for somebody who's got, you know, maybe on immunotherapy and we're thinking that there's an interaction and that we shouldn't be using something that's very common, commonly used for cancer pain, what do we do in those situations? And so there are a variety of different pain components of, of different folks that we treat on a day-to-day basis, whether it be just general pain, you know, treating with opioids, whether it be neuropathic type pain and treating with other agents that, that tackle that aspect of their pain. 
And then, you know, whether or not the level of pain justifies, you know, more high risk medications, you know, at that level. So there's lots of decisions we're making kind of on a day-to-day basis. And so Tanya, I know you and I have, you know, or have been coworkers for quite some time um, back at Huntsman. Now I know <laughs> back at Huntsman, when you were here before you went to Emory, you had a role on our palliative care team, kind of simultaneous with your experience on the inpatient service with managing immune related adverse events on, on that side of things where I was, on, I am still on the outpatient side. And so kind of that perspective, bring it in here. And I believe you're still, you're now, you're currently an internal medicine pharmacist, but you're transitioning to a palliative care role at Emory. That's so exciting. Are you excited about that? I'm thrilled. I get to be Emory's inaugural palliative care pharmacist. So I think by the time this is released, I will be fully transitioned, but I will be at the time of recording about a month out from transitioning to palliative care clinical pharmacy specialist at uh, Emory University Hospital. Yeah. So your background is such that, you know, I feel like it really fits this well because you have respect for immunotherapy, but also you have this deep appreciation for pain management. And so I'm curious about kind of stepping back maybe before we get into what we talked about in mid-year and saying like, you know, just kind of looking at what guidance we have in place, like what kind of consensus-based guidance do we have from guidelines, other resources for pain management for patients with cancer? What's your perspective on that in general? We do have a lot of resources available. There are a lot of, especially kind of expert opinion pieces and websites and references available that offer a lot of good guidance. We do have some more formal guidance. National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN actually has a set of guidelines specifically on adult cancer pain, separate from their guidelines on palliative care. And these guidelines are pretty robust and talk a lot about a lot of different pain medications and aspects of pain management. What's interesting about those guidelines, though, is they don't mention immunotherapy much at all. So the comments about immunotherapy in the NCCN guidelines are related to steroids specifically, which are sometimes a component of a a comprehensive pain plan for an individual with cancer. And they basically say that the use of steroids should be coordinated with an oncology care team. So that's, I think, an important thing to highlight, but also highlights that there's really not a lot of guidance on pain management specifically in patients with immunotherapy. So, uh, you know, to go back to your earlier point, we've talked a lot about drug interactions and things that interact with, uh, with immunotherapy, and we'll talk today some more about pain medication specifically that may interact. So it may just be that people don't know to ask this, you know, ask these questions. These guidelines don't also provide a lot of guidance on drug interactions specifically. Um, You know, a common one that comes up are related to opioids with enzalutamide, for example. So NCCN does have these guidelines. There are some other groups. ASCO has some recommendations as well. There are a lot of other references published by different groups, even with interventional pain techniques and recommendations. So there there are a lot of resources available. Um, I think a lot of what what we do and what my experience has been has been guideline-based, yes, but also very patient-focused, very patient-specific, and uh, always with a backup plan in mind. If something doesn't work, I'm glad that you that you highlighted that because in pain management, 
very rarely does plan A work the first time, every time, all the time. So it's not uncommon that a plan has to be modified if tolerance develops or if an intolerance develops. So I'm glad that you glad that you brought that up as well. Yeah, you know, it feels like and, and I've I'm not a palliative care expert, but I have I do occasionally put that hat on when I cover for the group here and I know enough to be dangerous, I think. And you know, there it does feel like when we think of interactions with any pain management scenario, it's it's a lot of the same type of stuff that we're familiar with with other types of interactions with cytochrome P450 and you know, with, like what you mentioned with enzalutamide being a strong CYP3A4 inducer. And so, you know, the danger is when you come off of that novel hormonal therapy, the extandy that, that once you stop the levels could skyrocket. And so like, there's lots of those interactions. I think that, that especially oncology pharmacists, but maybe even others like retail pharmacists and, 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 and the like might be familiar with, but this angle is kind of this other layer of assessment. You know, you got this assessment of drug risk with what the patient's on for cancer therapy, but you also mentioned at our talk, this kind of foundation of pain management has to comprise an actual pain assessment for a patient. So I'm wondering, we got the medication you know, aspect down. Would you talk a little bit more about how you assess pain in, in a patient? I'm so glad that you asked this question because this is something that I talk a lot about with residents and students that I bring on rotation with me because it's it's very common on rounds for me to get a question, the morphine's not working, what do I do? And I always ask more questions before I tell anybody what to do, because you, you have to understand the etiology of the pain to know how to treat it. So if somebody actually has neuropathic pain, but I'm giving them opioids, then it's no wonder their pain's not controlled. So understanding a person's pain and the nature of their pain is really important so that you can know how to best address it. So the mnemonic that I like for a comprehensive pain assessment is PQRSTU. And if you look it up online, you'll see some catchy images with the different components of this. But just to run through them quickly, P is precipitating or palliating. So things that make the pain worse or make the pain better. Quality, how would you describe the pain? Our region, radiation, where is it? Does it radiate? And I'm doing a very high level review of this, but uh, S is severity. So this is typically where we'd use a pain scale of zero to 10. A temporal is there a specific time of day when it's worse. And then you, I think, is one of the most important parts. How does this affect you? If your pain was controlled, what would you be able to do that you can't do now? I think all of those things together help you understand what type of pain someone is experiencing and how you can address it as well as how you can really connect with the patient to impact their quality of life in a positive way. Right. People might be listening and be like, hey, are we, are we listening to a podcast about pain management or are we listening to podcasts about immunotherapy? But I promise we're driving it home. Bringing it back to mid-year, I, I'm uh, thinking about the data that you presented. You, you presented information about acetaminophen and how it interacts with immunotherapy. Kind of just, would you give a brief summary of what we found there? And, and then maybe we'll kind of talk more about some practical aspects after that. Sure. So acetaminophen that I think I've 
I said this or say this in the other podcast that probably 99% or more of listeners of this podcast have in their cabinet, a bottle of acetaminophen. What's interesting though, and I'll keep this brief, is that patients receiving immunotherapy who have detectable levels of acetaminophen in clinical trials have worse overall survival, lower tumor response rate, or progression-free survival. And this is consistent across various sample sets of patients, uh, thought to be from a mechanism related to suppression of the anti-tumor immunity of T-cells. So this is a problem because Tylenol is so easily available. We all probably have it and we often think of it as very benign, but it actually affects the underlying mechanism of how immunotherapy works. And so we have to be, have to be really careful. So Jordan, one thing that I'm curious about, since you are taking care of oncology patients every day, how does this translate to what you do on a daily basis when patients come in and tell you they're taking Tylenol or they ask if they can take it or you find out they're taking it? What? How do y'all typically approach that? It's funny you ask that because listening to your discussion of how you assess pain and I keep thinking back to when I was in pharmacy school and, you know, it was kind of this presentation was that, oh, we got this pain epidemic. It was well, pre-opioid epidemic. It's more of that, oh, we've got all this untreated pain. We need to make sure that pain is assessed. We need to make sure it's treated. And so people were just using more and more and more and more opioids. And so, you know, especially in the cancer realm, we're kind of still in that role, right? We still need lots of opioids where the rest of kind of the world. And, and I think even still in the cancer realm, there's this movement away from opioids when we can. Right. And so I think, you know, tying in what you're talking about and then what kind of I see on the daily basis is that a lot of um, providers are opting for combination type products that include Tylenol, you know, almost trying to, if at all possible, limit the total morphine equivalent that a patient is receiving on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, when I hear this data about acetaminophen and I, I'm, I personally take it seriously and I think you do too. And then I also see what the movement is away from using opioids. I, I see this like incongruency and it's, and it's tough to know how to, you know, align those things. I think there are many ways you could approach this. And I think it's going to all have to kind of be uh, this kind of shared decision-making approach for me on a daily basis. When I see somebody that's starting immunotherapy or immune checkpoint inhibition, and they have a combination product, especially if they're starting immunotherapy for the first time, I do try to get them off of that combination product. I mean, especially if they're only, you know, using as needed, well, of course the combination tablets, it would be only as needed, but if they're not using it, you know, very frequently, um, getting them to just switch to a base opioid um, and then potentially considering other agents for mild pain is kind of what I'm currently doing. I know of others that you know, other pharmacists, we, we talk about this in our other podcast, but that don't even talk about Tylenol currently at all. Like it's not something that's actively on their radar. And so I think it's something where there's different approaches right now. I think a lot based on awareness of the data, a lot based on maybe fatigue or lack of appreciation of the data there, but that's kind of what I'm seeing uh, currently in the way I'm approaching it. Yeah. And I think the the question of combination products comes up a lot, and this is even outside of oncology. I think we maybe underestimate how 
many patients use combination products, whether it's a controlled substance or not, because acetaminophen is in so many over-the-counter products. And so my general approach is to try to keep it separate from an opioid if a patient needs something like oxycodone or hydrocodone. I would prefer that a patient be on a single product so that it's easier to track how much acetaminophen the patient is using rather than a potential for overdose, especially if they find themselves in a pain crisis and end up taking more tablets that exceed the, the maximum recommended daily amount of acetaminophen. And the NCCN guidelines actually highlight that too, the adult cancer pain guidelines, um, that use of combination opioid acetaminophen products uh, should not be used to avoid excess acetaminophen dosing. So, you know, maybe at this point the thought is, okay, well, you're telling me I can't use acetaminophen, but I have a patient who's refusing to use opioids. So maybe I'll just use NSAIDs. And this is a question that came up at mid-year as well, especially when we talked about the data with cannabis and how cannabis interacts with immunotherapy by uh, affecting the uh, pro-inflammatory activity, if you will, of immunotherapy. Um, so if cannabis is anti-inflammatory and that's affecting immunotherapy negatively, you would think the same may hold true for NSAIDs, but the data actually don't support that. So uh, this is an interesting question that I, I dug a little bit more into and um, highlighting some comments that you've made, Jordan, in our previous conversations, you know, these aren't robust, randomized, controlled trials with large numbers of patients, but it's still data we have and data we can use to help guide our decision making. So sometimes we we just have to do the best we can with the information we have um, until some of those uh, higher quality of data become available. So I did want to highlight a couple of take-home messages from some studies with NSAIDs, specifically in patients receiving immunotherapy. Um, one potential limitation of these studies is that most of the patients who were taking an NSAID, the NSAID was often aspirin. So I don't think we commonly use that or prescribe that as a first-line NSAID specifically for pain management. So these data may not translate necessarily to patients who use ibuprofen or naproxen or ketorolac or a number of other NSAIDs. So they were included. They were in smaller numbers in some of these trials. But that's just something to keep in mind that aspirin was the, the highest used NSAID in a lot of these studies. But what basically what the studies have shown is that objective response rates were similar in patients receiving NSAIDs or uh, as I'm getting tongue-tied. The response rates were similar in patients receiving NSAIDs or no NSAIDs, and there were no differences in overall survival. And that played out across a couple of studies. In fact, in one study, it showed that exposure was associated with longer overall survival. So uh, again, highlighting that point that these aren't really great um, uh, large-scale randomized controlled trials. I don't know that we can say everybody should have an NSAID because it improves survival, um, but it at least shows me that the anti-inflammatory activity of NSAIDs may not be harmful in this case. Um, so at this point, based on these studies, I'd probably feel comfortable recommending it in cancer patients, especially because we use NSAIDs a lot for things like bone pain or um, inflammation related to all of the things that happen to cancer patients over the course of their treatment. 
Um, but it is something that I'm going to be keeping an eye out for to see if we get more information about. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. When we were at mid-year, I don't think we had gone in depth toward that NSAID direction during our discussion. So I think it was it's interesting to hear that angle, you know, that you found that there are some studies out there in this regard. Um, I think one of the, you know, it's funny we because we are advocates, I think, for using imperfect data. But I think it's also important to kind of acknowledge where data can be weak, even when you're mm-hmm. using imperfect data. The studies on the NSAIDs I noticed are are largely based on like, Qualifying a patient as, as an NSAID user if they have a script or you know prescription or right. you know, script on their EHR versus you know the Tylenol data is based on the actual levels in the serum of the patients that were going forward and so I think whatever criticism you might have for the Tylenol data hey at least they knew for a fact that the patients had acetaminophen in their bloodstream at the time when they you know had that assessed pre-starting immunotherapy um where that's that's harder to tease out for when you're just using EHR you know drug admin records to um you know during deem exposure but kind of wrapping up the time i was wondering if we might spend a few minutes talking about like alternatives we're kind of giving a scenario in which and, and maybe this explains some of the opposition I've run up against with Tylenol and, you know, interaction with immune checkpoint inhibition is like, the question is like, okay, well, what now? What, what do you suggest instead, especially for mild pain and other things, but what kind of other medications do we primarily look, look to for pain management in patients with cancer? Like what are the main kind of classes that we look to, Tanya? Yeah, there are, there are several. I think some of them even get forgotten about because we hear things about them in pharmacy school or from patients. And um, I will reemphasize the importance of a good pain assessment to understand what the cause is, um, if it's a spasm or neuropathic pain, because we have medications for both of those. So we have anti-spasticity medications. We have medications specifically for spasms. A lot of times, um, things like cyclobenzaprine, tizanidine, baclofen are used interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable. They are structurally different and different ones should be used for different things. Maybe another topic for another podcast for another day. But remember that you do have uh, those uh, quote-unquote muscle relaxers available. Neuropathic agents, of course, you have uh, an arsenal of things there available to you. Gabapentin, pregabalin, most commonly, maybe carbamazepine for something more refractory or uh, more of a trigeminal neuralgia picture. I actually had a patient one time who had chemo-induced neuropathy and it manifested solely as trigeminal neuralgia and it was nowhere else. And carbamazepine was the the magic bullet for that patient. Uh, The other thing that can be helpful is tricyclic antidepressants. So uh, these, uh, again, probably another podcast for another day, but for cancer pain, for cancer-related neuropathic pain can be helpful in certain scenarios. And never forget those topical agents. So overall, pretty minimal systemic absorption, but various lidocaine formulations, diclofenac gel, these are medications that typically have to be used consistently to work well. So um, ideally not on a PRN basis, uh, but remember that those are available. And there are also a lot of other non-medication options that we have available too. Uh, So interventional pain techniques, various blocks, um, infusions of non-opioid medications, sometimes radiation therapy can be alleviating of pain as well. Things like massage, acupuncture. I know at, at Huntsman, uh, there's a special wellness center that has access to a lot of those things for patients who want to try 
a very comprehensive approach and not just use medications. So there are a, a number of things that patients can use to help with their pain. And I think, you know, just thinking on that wavelength, there's so many times where pharmacists and, and maybe not just pharmacists, but a lot of healthcare professionals, you know, are just obsessed with the idea that there's got to be a drug for everything, you know, right. and that's not always the case, you know, especially if you're, you know, concerned about Tylenol not being an option, you're probably thinking in the mild pain realm anyway, right? And so, you know, maybe these non-drug options are something that should be considered. Maybe it's something that we need to pursue more aggressively and suggest more, you know, in a timely manner for our patients that are suffering from mild to moderate pain as an option to try to potentially limit opioid use. So I think there's so many directions. I think maybe for me, the take home from listening to you and others, you know, is that Tylenol, yeah, it's a fantastic drug. Yes, it's our golden child, but there are alternatives to acetaminophen uh, in the immunotherapy realm. You think that that's an accurate assessment of, of what you're trying to say, Tanya? That's a good summary statement. So remember that everything, anything and everything may interact, always good to check. Think about the mechanisms of things and how they work. That's how the questions about NSAIDs came up. And remember that you have a number of tools in your toolbox as a pharmacist that you can recommend for your patients to help specifically with pain control and your patients receiving immunotherapy. So Jordan, I appreciate your insight and your opinions and support today. That is all the time we have. I'd like to thank Jordan for our discussion. I hope everybody was able to, to learn something today and that you'll be able to take something home uh, to your side of practice that you can use to better help your patients. Don't forget to check out our mid-year and Ask the Experts webinars. We hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.